Hello and welcome to this week's Acting Out podcast. Hello and welcome to the last of the monologues taken from 25 The Decriminalisation Monologues. This piece is called The Special Friend and is by Sean Denyer and features Howard Lodge as Mark. Right, I'll have to be quick, because EastEnders is on in a minute. It was his favourite programme, you see, back in the day. I never really liked it, to be honest. Well, that's not true. I loved Angie. Angie Watts. You're the original landlady of the Queen Vic. Oh, I absolutely adored her. But it was never the same after she left, was it? She's married to that guy out of Queen in real life, isn't she? The one with the big hair. The plots on EastEnders are ridiculous these days. Kidnap, murder, blackmail, you name it. It's never just people going to the shops, coming home, making the tea and watching the telly, is it? I only watch it because it reminds me of him. And stop him watching it. Well, be like another bit of him gone. It's daft, really. I mean, it's been 25 years now since he left us. Since he left me. I met him in London. He'd come over to work. He said nearly all the gays left Ireland, if they could. London or America, mostly. Because Ireland was so repressive. Being fucking gay is not even fucking legal in fucking Ireland, he said. Eamon's vocab always was a bit fruity. Mind you, I did subsequently learn that it's quite normal in Ireland to say fuck three times in every sentence. It's part of the charm. He told me all this in this dingy bar in Soho. Now I say dingy, but don't get me wrong, I absolutely loved it. The mere fact it was a gay bar with actual gay men in it was astonishing to a working-class northern lad like me. Men flirting, men kissing, men having actual sex in the toilets with each other. It was fucking brilliant. I had done my own version of Escape. From a dreary northern English town which was grey and depressing and had almost full unemployment since that fucking bitch Thatcher had decimated the coal industry. God, I hated her. There was only one known gay in our town. Cyril. Ran the tea shop. Very camp. But he was always very kind to me. I think he knew I was one of the sisterhood before I knew myself. There must have been other gays in the town, of course. But I couldn't find them, and it wasn't for one to look in. But of course we didn't have Grinder or Tinder in those days. The nearest we had were the classified ads in the Northern Echo. And they were always a bit vague. Gentlemen, 35, 
not married, seeks lads for nights out, that kind of thing. God, I hated that place, and I couldn't wait to leave. And it happened a bit quicker than I'd planned. You see, me dad kicked me out when he found me having it away with this fellow I'd met through the classifieds. Travelling salesman from Swindon. It was stupid of me to bring him home, but it was better than doing it in the back of his Vauxhall Cavalier. You know, I think I wanted to be found out. I wanted them to know me. The real me. Me mum died soon after all that. And me dad said it was her finding out has finished her off. I said, having a homosexual son does not cause cancer. Yeah, he said. But the stress of having a puffter for a son is probably what triggered it off. Arsehole. That was the last thing he ever said to me. I hopped on a train to London and I never went back. Not even for his funeral. London. In the 1980s. It was so big. It was so expensive. But it was so bloody exciting for a young gay lad. I found work quickly in a menswear shop on the Fulham Road. All of the staff were queer, including Derek the owner. The girls, I called them. We had such a laugh. It was in that place I found my real family. People who cared about me and who became friends for life. Though at that time, life could be cruelly short. There's only me and Simon from the shop who were still alive. Clive, Pat... Nigel, Derek, all gone. Three of them to the horrors. That's what our gang called the epidemic. The horrors. I'd first met Eamon in the shop. He'd come in to be measured for a suit. He was really tall and handsome, with a thick shock of black curly hair and big strawberry-coloured lips... A vaguely kind of Latin look about him. I learned after that that such a look is not unusual in the west of Ireland, on account of the Armada, all those randy Spaniards mingling with the locals. Me and the other girls were fighting over who would get to do him. In the end we had to draw lots, and I was the winner. We often had to do that when a handsome fellow wanted serving, and Derek, to his credit, never pulled rank. Oh, Eamon's accent. When we were looking at fabrics, I kept bringing out more and more samples just to hear him say, Oh, sure, that's grand, or thanks a million. I know I'm still hopeless at the accent after all these years. And don't get me started on measuring his inside leg. The suit was for his sister's wedding. I pounced. Oh, are you uh, married yourself, I said, desperately hoping the answer would be no. Simon reckoned he was straight, but I think Simon was just pissed because I got to do Eamon and he never. Besides, Eamon held your gaze just a little bit too long to be straight. It's a dead giveaway, that. No, I don't think I'm the Marian kind, he replied. Bingo. Turns out I was right. 
Because who should I run into the very next day in the Admiral Duncan but the man himself? I was at the bar waiting to get served. And I heard this voice say, So this is where you go when you're not selling suits. I turned round and it was him. We hit it off straight away. It was easy. He was the manager of a hotel in the West End. He'd studied hotel management in Ireland and had already worked in Paris and New York and now London. Within weeks, I'd moved in. I mean, I know it seems fast, but sometimes you just know these things. And besides, he had a lovely one bed in Notting Hill and I had a bedsit in Tottenham with a rat infestation. It was an easy decision to make. Oh, we live the life. Cocktails, parties, West End shows, swanky nightclubs. And then everything changed. We'd been together about two years when he heard that his aunt had died and had left him her big old house a few miles outside of Galway. She'd apparently always had a soft spot for Eamon and he'd always thought she was a dyke because she was, by all accounts, always putting up shelves. I'd never met any of his family. They knew he was gay, but it was never spoken of. If they came to London... They never came to the flat, which suited me fine, as I had no inclination to pretend to be just a friend. That's what people used to do in those days, pretend they were friends. Anyway, he got the notion that he wanted to turn his aunt's house into a luxury B&B, targeting the UK and American gay market. I thought he was nuts. No gays are going to go to bloody Galway, I said. It's a gay wilderness, you said so yourself but he insisted there was indeed a hidden market. There's nowhere that gay couples can safely go on holiday in Ireland, he said. We can create something special, a safe haven for gay men and women, and make money too. And what exactly will I do there? I don't know anything about running a bloody B&B. And what about our friends? You said yourself there are no gays in rural Ireland. Why would anyone want to leave London for all that shit? He just laughed. That's how he always wore me down, by laughing and making me laugh. And before I knew it, I'd agreed to go. Well, it was his dream, wasn't it? How could I not want him to follow his dream? I still couldn't quite believe it when we got on the boat. I was actually going to leave London. London! for some godforsaken bog in the Irish countryside. Derek and the girls were distraught at me going. When it all goes to shit, as it inevitably will, there'll always be a job back here for you, my son, Derek had said. He'd become like a substitute dad to me. Poor sod. Within a year he'd been run over by a number 59 bus after leaving the Vauxhall Tavern following a night out. Pissed as a fart he was, Walking in the middle of the road. The daft bugger. Ireland was a culture shock. Yes, on the face of it, we all spoke the same language. But it was like every word had a different meaning from the one I was used to. For the first six months, 
I felt like an alien living in some kind of parallel universe. And I was really homesick for London and the gang. And remember, this was before the days of the internet and cheap flights and phone calls to England were ridiculously expensive, so it was hard keeping in touch. There were times I was crushingly lonely and longed for something familiar. What kept me going was Eamon. He never got mad or snarky with me, not ever. Not even when I was being a complete bitch, which to be frank was fairly often at the time. What he did say was that if I still hated it after two years, then we would sell up and leave, no questions asked. And I knew he meant it. But here's the thing. After six horrible months, things started to improve. We threw ourselves into remaking the house. I did all the interior design and supervised the workmen, and I was good at it. We opened after six months of renovations, and we were almost always full right from the start. Eamon had been correct. There were indeed loads of well-off gay couples desperate to stay somewhere where they wouldn't be asked if they really needed a double bed. Or worse still, actually refused a bed for the night. And that used to happen. We created our safe haven. A place where gay folk could meet other gay folk. A place where condoms and lube were provided in tasteful wicker baskets on the bedside table. A place where our gay guests could relax and breathe, just be themselves and have a laugh. All the normal things that straight holiday makers took for granted. Pretty soon, we were featured in just about every gay guide on the planet. I loved it. The house was always full of really interesting people from America and from the UK and soon France and Germany and Australia. People came back year after year. We made friends from all over the world. What was more of a surprise was how the local community accepted us. No one needed to put a name on what we were. Gay, couple, partners. People seemed to like us. It took a while, but they could see we were contributing to the local economy. We sourced everything locally, from sausages to turf. Eamon insisted on it. People saw us as Eamon and Mark, the two lads from the guest house. Of course there were one or two that ignored us, but they were never rude to our faces, so that was fine. Even the local priest, Father Pat, who was only a young fellow himself, used to call in. He'd stay and have a cup of tea or a whiskey and chat to the guests. Oh, he was proper good-looking too. He was my secret crush. Eamon used to tease me about it. Oh, you'd better get the best elf out, Mark. Your boyfriend's at the door. The daft bugger. Eamon knew he was the only one I ever loved. The thing about rural Ireland is they're used to difference. So they have a live and let live attitude. Unlike Eamon's family, who were a different story. They lived a safe distance away in Wexford and thankfully never came near our place. Eamon would visit them a few times a year, duty visits, but I never went. I would not put you through that, he said. It would be awful. 
part of me thought we should confront them. I mean, if they met me, they couldn't keep up the hostility, could they? Look at how the local community accepts us, I said. It took a bit of time, so surely they'd come round eventually. No, love, they won't, he said. If I thought there was even the slightest chance, I'd risk it. But you don't know them like I do. So, that was that. I thought we were set for life. I was with the man I loved and who loved me, working in a successful business which was more like a hobby than a job, with friends from all over the world and a community of neighbours who thought of us as part of the furniture. But things were very fragile, especially if you were a gay man back then. Things you thought were solid, long-lasting, permanent, were really just eggshells waiting to be crushed. Because under Irish law, I had no legal status. I was, in fact, a criminal. Albeit a criminal who had committed no crime. Eamon had always been in rude health. He never took a day off work, kept himself really fit, running weights, swimming, that kind of thing. So I was taken aback when he started to get poorly. At first, it was like he had some kind of bug that he couldn't shake off. Then he'd get better and another one would hit him. He wouldn't go to the doctor. Oh no, he hated the doctors. Then one day, he'd just come out of the shower and I noticed a mark on his back. Like a bruise, almost. Not very big, but clearly noticeable. I knew what it was straight away. I'd seen it before in London. The horrors. From that point on, Eamon's decline was rapid. It was horrible to see. This was just before the advent of effective therapies, so what they could do was limited, really. They'd try and keep people comfortable and deal with the infections, but that was about the height of it. Eamon was in and out of hospital in Dublin for months. I kept believing he would get better, my Eamon. And so did he. Even though he'd lost so much weight, he was practically a skeleton by the end. He just would not submit to it. He kept his sense of humour right to the very end. Loads of our former guests came to see him, flying in to Dublin from New York and Pittsburgh. I couldn't believe it. People from the village were always asking after him. He left a mark on people, you know. His family never visited not even once. How could you do that to your child? To your brother? How could you claim to be a Christian and treat someone like that? The first time I ever spoke to Eamon's family was to tell them that he had died. I called them from a hospital payphone crying all the time down the phone. Right, his father said. We'll take over from here. 
what do you mean? I said. Uh, take over what? I, I don't understand. We're his family. We know what you are. Please respect our wishes. And then he put the phone down. Eamon dying was like the worst nightmare imaginable. But it seemed that the nightmare was just beginning. The day after he died, I went back to the hospital to try and start arranging the funeral. But when I got there, they told me that he'd gone. That his family had taken his body. But they can't have, I shouted at the nurse. They've no right. He's my partner. They didn't give a fuck about him while he was alive. The nurse took me aside. Listen, Mark, he said. I'm so sorry. And I know this is a complete bollocks, but basically, you have no rights when it comes to Eamon's funeral. You have no legal status as next of kin. And my advice, horrible as it is, is to take a breath, stand back and be very, very nice to Eamon's family. Your role in his funeral is entirely dependent on them letting you have one. I knew he was right. So, I swallowed my anger and I tried to contact Eamon's family. I rang and I rang again and again and again. No answer. I'd been staying with a friend in Dublin. And on the second night I was there, I got a call from Danny, who was our deputy manager at the guest house. Mark, he said, you better get back quick. Eamon's family are here. I went back to Galway the next day. When I got back to the guest house, all the locks had been changed. It was more like a ghost house than a guest house. All my stuff had been shoved into boxes and left by the side of the road. I ran to Danny's house. Mark, it was awful, he said. Eamon's family came in and they literally threw out all the guests and had some guy change the locks. They said the business was closing forthwith and it would be sold immediately and that you would deal with any debts due. But they can't do that, I said. It's my home. But it seems it wasn't my home. My name wasn't on the deeds or the mortgage papers. Eamon had left a will leaving the house to me, but no one could find it. And in any case, my solicitor said it wouldn't stand up in court. That in the legal sense, I had no rights. From a legal point of view, Eamon's and mine's relationship did not exist. Danny had told me that the funeral was going to be in the village. There had been the usual delays that happened with AIDS patients and funerals at that time. The family had conceded to one of Eamon's wishes, at least, that he be buried in the village graveyard. Mind you, I think they only did that so they could avoid half of Wexford knowing about him what he died of. No one invited me to the funeral, of course. Up until the very last minute, I wasn't going to go. Fuck em, I thought. Why should I put myself through that? 
But then I thought, the funeral isn't for them. It's for my Eamon. And I want to say goodbye to him. He would want me there. And what are they going to do? Have me thrown out of the church? When I arrived, his family... I recognised them from a few photographs that Eamon had of them. We're all sat at the front. The church was packed and I could see how embarrassed the local people were at how I was being treated. They all made a beeline for me. Sorry for your loss, Mark. We lost a great man there, Mark. Danny took me by the arm and led me to the pew where he and the other guest house staff were sitting. A couple of rows behind the family who never once turned round. I could see Eamon's coffin up at the altar, and I had this sudden feeling that I wanted to run up and lie on it, to break it open, get inside and be buried with him. Father Pat got up to speak. He spoke of Eamon's kindness and sense of community and the loss that people would feel at him passing, particularly... His special friend Mark, he said. Special friend? Is that what I was? A special friend? To be fair to Father Pat, I'm sure Eamon's family were livid at him mentioning me at all, so it was brave of him in a way, but... Special friend? That was so hurtful and so bloody demeaning. I was so angry. But all of a sudden, I felt a great clarity. And I stood up. Excuse me, Father. I'm very sorry to interrupt, but I was not Eamon's special friend. A terrible silence descended over the congregation followed by a few coughs and sharp intakes of breath. A man, I think Eamon's brother, not even bothering to turn round and look at me, said, Please sit down, have you no respect? Have I no respect? Have I no respect, you say? What about respecting Eamon's wishes? What about respecting those? I am not Eamon's special friend. I am his partner, his lover. I am his husband. What about respecting that? Eamon was the kindest, most loving man you could ever wish to meet. Every day I give thanks for the life we shared, for the friends we made, for the love he showed me, and I thank God that he is not here to witness the shameful contempt he has been shown by people who purport to be his family. A family who did not visit him, not even once when he was dying in hospital. A family who did nothing for him in his darkest days and a family who have descended like vultures to pick over his corpse. Is that what you want me to respect? 
What I have come here today to say is this. Goodbye, Eamon, my dearest love. You were the stars in the heavens. You were the sun in the morning and a cool breeze on a hot, hot day. I loved you with every fibre of my being and I will never, ever forget you. And then Danny leapt to his feet and started applauding. And so did Sheila and Tommy and Patrick and Maeve and Conan and soon virtually the whole congregation were on their feet clapping. I was feeling really emotional and I knew I had to get out of there so I got up to leave. But here's the thing. Everyone else in that church except Eamon's family and Father Pat left with me. They all filed out of the door behind me and pretty soon I was surrounded by them crying and hugging me, linking arms. You're dead right, said Sheila. We'll miss him terribly and he'd be so proud of you. We ended up going to Tommy's bar and stayed there till five in the morning telling stories about Eamon, singing songs and having the crack. Father Pat joined us later. He gave me a big hug. I'm so sorry, he said. That wasn't right. It just wasn't right. And I knew he meant it. It was the party Eamon would have wanted us to have. A big, loud, drunken celebration of him. I stayed in the village. Eamon and I had a credit union savings account the family didn't find out about. They sold the guest house on, but it didn't do that well. It's a nursing home now. I opened a little cafe with the money we'd saved. And it does okay. I mean, we'll never be rich, but it pays the bills and I enjoy it, you know. Keeps me busy. And some of the guests from the old days drop by if they pass in. We have a laugh and remember Eamon. Simon from the old days at the shop on the Fulham Road comes every year too. It's nice. People forget how things were then. Everything has changed so it's easy to forget. But our rights were hard won and can be sharp taken away. They do well to remember that. Look, you've kept me talking and my programme's about to start, so I'd better go. Oh, I'm tidying up his grave tomorrow, planting some new bulbs that Sheila gave me. And Eamon will want me and Pat to tell him all about what that dishy Johnny Cart has been up to in Albert Square. Yes... That part, Father Pat, well, he's left the priesthood now, of course. He kind of had to, when we got married, you see. <sighs> How Eamon would have laughed. How he would have laughed at that. You've been listening to The Special Friend by Sean Denyer. Mark was played by Howard Lodge and the play was directed by Mark Power.
Music for the production was by Eden. You've been listening to the Acting Out podcast. If you'd like to know more about what we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at Acting Out Group or on our Facebook page or go to our website www.actingoutgroup.com. Music for the podcast was by Eden and the show was produced by Sean Denyer.